This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Rob Tombrella is a pastor at Grace Church and the speaker on this message. Well, welcome. Come on in and grab a seat if you don't have a seat already. And want to give a big welcome as well. My name is Rob. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And if this is your very first Sunday here, we are in a series uh, through the book of Nehemiah. I know that can sound like a real kind of big church word. It's a book in the Bible, and it's actually on page 231 uh, in the uh, Bible that's like underneath your seat or in a seat next to you. So just want to encourage you, if you don't have a Bible, grab one of those Bibles. Uh, It's absolutely free to you. You can take that with you. And, um, and this, this is the book that we've been in. And we're in chapter 11. That's on page 231, chapter 11. And uh, I'm going to give you a very quick kind of synopsis of what we've been studying in this book of Nehemiah to catch you up. It would be about a 20-second thing. So if you've never uh, been with us, here's kind of the catch-up. Nehemiah is this guy who was a cupbearer to this really important guy in Persia. He was the king of Persia. So he had a really high role in this leading city. Everybody wanted to live in Persia. It was the place to be. It was the center of activity. It was a lot of wealth there. And this guy had a really high job with the king. But then he hears about his homeland in Jerusalem. He was a Jewish guy. And they had been there for hundreds of years in exile. And he was there. And he hears about his city his hometown, Jerusalem, and how it's in shambles. And he feels this burden well up in him to restore what's broken down. He just, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, where you hear a report of something and something stirs inside of you. Well, that's what happened to Nehemiah. Something stirs inside. He's got to get back to Jerusalem. He's got to get there. There had been people that had already gone there a hundred years before. He's got to go join those people. He's got to restore what's broken down. And, uh, and he asks permission from the king. He kind of breaks p- protocol. He steps out in faith. He risks a little something. And the king says, yes, and I'll send money with you and I'll send people with you. And he gets to Jerusalem. And when he shows up, it is worse than he imagined. I mean, he'd heard stories, but he gets there. And in chapter two, he's like, like at one point, he's like inspecting the walls and he's on his horse. And he can't even, it says he can't even get around the rubble to properly inspect the walls. The walls are broken down. I mean, it's completely unsafe. The, the, the houses are all torn down. It's just in disrepair everywhere. So he starts the work. God's called him. He shows up. And he, get, he just goes after it. And so he puts the walls in place and uh, the, the people join him. They see his effort. They see his faith. And the people gather around Nehemiah and say, let's do this. So everybody puts the walls in place. Uh, then they reestablish God's word. They're like, we're the people of God's word, of, of God's truth. This is how God kind of birthed us as a people. And so we're going to recenter our lives on God's word. And so they do that together as a people and everybody's got this momentum going. And then the people of God said, let's keep going. Let's renew our covenant relationship with God. And so they do that together. So Nehemiah leads in all of these reforms and restoration is taking place and movement is happening. And there's a lot of exciting activity, but then in chapter 11, which is where we're at today, we see a problem. And the problem is that even though everybody gathered to put the walls together and renew the covenant publicly and all of that stuff, the city needed people to live in the city. And unless a sufficient number of people were actually willing to pick up and move into the city, everything that they've done up to this point was going to be a waste 
of time and effort. So something very specific had to happen for this to keep going, for this revival to keep on going. They needed to move in. And moving in represented a tremendous step of faith. I don't know if you've ever had something very specific land on you where you know you, you knew you needed to do it. But you didn't have the ability within you to, to do it. And it required a step of faith. I don't know if you've also kind of looked back on your life and you've seen where if you, when you've trusted God, how the Lord met you with that sacrifice or with that step of faith. And he kind of renewed something in you when you just trusted him, when you just came honestly and said, I'm going to surrender this thing to you. And I hope that we see today in chapter 11 that ongoing renewal, if we want that ongoing presence of God in our lives, it requires from us an ongoing surrender to God. If we want renewal from God, we've got to surrender to God ongoingly. So let's Let's pray and let's invite the Holy Spirit who reveals God's scripture to us just to have his way, just to speak to us and and to reveal to us whatever he wants to. So let's open up our hearts to him right now. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would reveal to us what you want us to see in the scripture today. We believe that the scripture is God breathed. We believe that you were, you're the author of it ultimately. And we ask God that it would point us to you and we'd see your glory today. And it it would cause us to trust you, to surrender to you, to believe you. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so if you're in uh, chapter 11, just look at verse 1 and that's where we're going to get started here. Now... That says, that's a big, long passage, so I want to put some fears to rest here. We're not going to read every single uh, line of this entire chapter and into chapter 12. We're mostly going to look at verses 1 and 2. So let's let's look at verse 1. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city. While nine of the ten remained in the other in the other towns, so notice that Jerusalem here is named the holy city. They recognize this as the center city of all of God's redemptive activity in the world in this day. But do you see that nobody wants to live in Jerusalem? Nobody wants to live there. And that could be kind of curious. Why in the world would nobody want to live in Jerusalem? Well, here's why. It's a dangerous city. I mentioned before that the walls had been broken down. It was a a city in that day was like a target. Like you had just like a a target on you that that was where the wealth was. That's where if there's any money in that that city for for an army passing by, that's where it is. So they're not going to attack the small towns or the small communities out in the countryside. They're going to go after the city. So it kind of made you open and a little bit dangerous. There's also less crops and flocks and herds. For anybody that lived in the city, uh, it meant that you were going to have less. You were going to have less money. You were going to have less income than somebody that lived out in the country. If you chose to live in the city and you had land somewhere else, who's going to tend, for your, tend your land? Who's going to look after all of your animals? That kind of thing. And besides all of that, the city of Jerusalem was just plain ugly. It was unattractive and undesirable. You all have had that conversation in the car. You're just driving through the city and you're just like, who, 
Who would want to live there? Please don't name any uh, city names. But who wants to live in this unattractive, ugly city? It's got a smell to it. and ugh, Nobody wants to live in this place. Well, that was what Jerusalem was. It was unattractive. It was undesirable. It was ugly. Nehemiah 7.4 says the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few. So this city had a huge historic reputation, lots of bustling activity one day, but that day is not this day because nobody wants to live in this place. It says no houses had been rebuilt. It's just everything's in shambles. Everything's broken down. It's like a realtor's nightmare. Nobody wants a dangerous, undeveloped, unattractive place to live in, but God does. God does. It should be no surprise to us that the center of God's activity was in the most unattractive and undesirable places on earth. God's heart and his mind and his vision was on the city of Jerusalem, even though nobody wanted to live there, even though nobody wanted to be there. Even though it was so messy and unattractive and undesirable, God wanted to be there and he wanted his people to be there. Is it little surprise when we read in John 1.14 that the word became flesh. God moved towards what was unattractive and undesirable and dwelt among us, John 1.14 says. And Eugene Peterson in the, in the message translates it this way. He moved into the neighborhood. He moved into, he moved away from what was glorious And moved into what was unattractive and undesirable to rescue us. How he did that, Philippians tells us, he emptied himself. That means he had glory. He he was in an attractive place, but he emptied himself of that and moved towards what was unlovely in rescue of us by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of man, God becoming man, being found in human form. He humbled himself. That's moving towards us. We're like on the outside and God's moving towards us by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You want to know what love is like? We've been singing about this morning. If you want to know how do you define love, it's even death on a cross. It's death on a cross. You want to know how, how do I define God? How do I know God loves me, has ever shown or demonstrated love for me? It's his death on the cross for you. And this is good news because, listen, God created us to be with him. He wants to be with him, with us. He wants to be with us. We kind of think, well, it starts with us, that we want to be with God. But actually, God wants to be with us. And so he takes the initiative towards us. Our sins separate us from God. Our sins move us out of the zip code of where he is and places us somewhere else. We moved away from God in our sins. Have you ever thought... God moved away from me. I was here and God was here and then God took off. But actually, the Bible says our sins separate us from him and sins can't be removed by doing a bunch of good deeds. It's like taking uh, a a corpse. uh, This is kind of a tough image. but Imagine taking a corpse and just dressing that corpse up. If it's dead inside, it doesn't matter what it looks like on the outside. It's like taking a, a, a burnt cake and just putting all this nice frosting over it with our good works. We think, well, 
there it is, God, that, that's it. This makes me commendable to you. But the cake is still burnt, right? And the frosting might be good, but the cake is burnt. So sins can't be removed by good deeds. But Jesus paid the price for sin in full in his death on the cross and his resurrection out of the tomb. So the, the penalty of sin has been completely paid for so that everyone who trusts in Jesus alone has eternal life. And this life starts now and last forever. It's not just one day that you get eternal life. He desires us to the point that he moves into us. It actually personally lives within us. And he puts new life into a dead heart, into a dead place. When we say yes to Jesus and we just welcome him. And maybe you're here today and you're at a place where you've tried everything, but you've never really welcomed Jesus into your life. Maybe you'd be open to that. Maybe you'd say, I'm, I believe that you want to be with me. And I believe that you created me to be with you. And I've tried all these, these other things, but I've never welcomed you into my heart. Well, if you trust in Jesus, you can have eternal life. Well, there's a leadership principle here. Don't you see? It's the, really the principle of Jesus. Spiritual leaders position themselves into God's activity no matter how unattractive and undesirable. We were unattractive. We were undesirable. And God moved towards us. And if we want to be like Jesus, if we don't think that we're above our teacher Jesus, according to Luke 6, 4, then we will be like him and we'll move towards God's activity. And that's what the leaders do. Do you see that? They're about to draw straws and the rest of God's people are going to join what the leaders are already doing. But in verse 1, the leaders are already living there. They took a pay cut. They, they, uh, they, they just moved in before everybody else decided to move in. And you could say, well, I'm not a leader. Nobody's ever given me that responsibility. I've never been given that title. So I'm just like a pure follower. Don Allender, in his book, Leading with a Limp, he says this. No one is a mere follower. If you're a follower of God, for instance then you're called to lead. Every believer is called to help someone grow into maturity. And such is the core calling of a leader. Everybody's got somebody that the Lord has placed within your sphere of influence. And our responsibility, your responsibility, is to take hold of that and help somebody grow into maturity, to help somebody follow Jesus, to make ourselves available to those people and say, no matter what it takes, I'm going to help you follow Jesus. Well, notice what verse 1 and verse 2 go on to say. The leaders are already there, but notice what happens here. This is just absolutely amazing. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of the ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. There was this willingness of the people to say, yes, I'm going to move into Jerusalem. Now, just to give it some perspective, for over 100 years, most families, which at this point equaled about 50,000 people, lived in other towns around Jerusalem. They lived on farms and they had cattle and they had Land, And they had been in these places for a long time. And if you can imagine 
living in one place with your family heritage for like a hundred years, you can imagine how settled you would be and how comfortable you would be. And you could tell stories about this place and this place. I mean, this whole land is your family's land and heritage. And there was just great appeal in that day, just like today, to live in the country. The scenery was better. Uh, there's less people. Everybody thinks, well, if I get away from all these crowds and all these people, I'll, uh, it'll just be better. It'll be safer. Uh, you'd have more land. All these kinds of things um, was the promise of living in the country. And to this day, there's still this appeal to live in the country. My wife and I, before we came here 13 years ago to, to help plant this church, uh, I was pastoring a church out in the country. And, man, it was in the country. I thought I was from a small town, which had like 8,000 8, people, the, the high school that I graduated from in a town near Galveston. I thought that was a small town. I boasted that I was from a small town until I lived in a small town of like 300 people. And the school was K through 12. And, you know, it was that whole 12-man <clears throat> football thing. It was amazing. And uh, if you just drive like an hour and a half south, east, west, whatever of the Metroplex, you can bump into all kinds of small communities like this. And that's where we lived. And uh, we were told, man, this place is beautiful. It was. It's lovely. It was. They also said it's extremely safe. We were told on more than one uh, occasions, you never have to lock your doors in this town. Can you imagine that? Like, you just never have to lock your doors. And so we didn't. We didn't lock our doors. And our car stereo was stolen twice. <laughs> and I have lived in some sketchy places and never was my car broken into. But we moved out to the country. And twice, we witnessed all kinds of crazy stuff out in the, the country when we were keeping it rural for three years. And... Uh, But it was attractive, and it was, it was enjoyable for those time, that time that we stayed there. But we also met a lot of people that were disillusioned. Like, they thought, if we move out to the country, it'll be just safer, and it'll, uh, we'll get away from all the evils of the city. And, and then they moved there, and there were challenges to living in the country, just like there are challenges to living in an urban area or a suburban area. There are challenges to each place that we are, and we can kind of have envy of another place. We want to live in this other place. It'll be better if I live in that place. We're in the suburbs. It's just, it's, it's safe, but it's not cool and trendy. So we want to live in an urban setting. And then you're urban. And you're like, man, I just want to get away from all these people. So you want to go live in the country. And so we can have place envy and we can just be unsettled and unresolved of where God's called us to be. Well, uh, in this story, listen to this amazing thing that takes place. These 50,000 people are going to send a tithe of themselves, which came to 5,000 people, to go live in Jerusalem. We're settled where we are, but we're going to move into Jerusalem. Like, all these families are going to uproot and, and go, which is just amazing. And the only way that that takes place, the only way you get to 5,000, the way they're doing it, is that everybody says yes. Everybody collectively says yes to God. Everybody's in. And if I'm, if I'm called for tribute, I'm going and I'm not complaining because we're all in. And I don't know if you're going to get called or this other person's going to get called, but we're in for the kingdom. It's all about God's name and his restorative purposes on the earth. And so I'm available to you, God. If you call my number, I'm going. 
So all the people do that. Now, when one person does that, and then another person decides to do that, and then another person, and it trickles out, and all of God's people decide to do something that radical, that's what we call revival. This guy, Richard Owen Roberts, says, Revival is an extraordinary movement of the Holy Spirit producing extraordinary results. That's clearly what's happening here. This is extraordinary results that can only be accomplished by an extraordinary God moving among God's people. Nehemiah is not clever enough to cause this to happen. He took a huge step of faith. He surrendered over to the Lord, but he can't make anybody else say, yes, I'm, I'm in. Just put my name in the hat. And if my name's drawn, I'm going, I'm going to uproot my family and move to an undesirable place. But the Holy Spirit can do that. The Holy Spirit can put desires in us that we never had before. He can put thoughts in our minds and desires and, and wants that weren't there before. And that's what he does here. He, he supernaturally moves God's people to open up their hearts and make themselves available to God and say, yes, Lord, whatever you want me to do, I'm willing to do. And so that's really the heart of revival. If we want revival to, to come to the office or to our church or to our school or to our place of work, if wherever we want that to happen, we've got to ask ourselves first, am I surrendered to God fully and totally? Am I willing to say yes to whatever he would call me to do? Well, they have this surrendered heart, all of them, and they draw names and 5,000 people are drawn and they're going. They're, they're going to they're gonna move. And really the rest of chapter 11 and into chapter 12 are kind of the list of all the people who went. In chapter 3, we see that these are the chiefs of the provinces who lived in Jerusalem. So here's the list of those guys, verses 3 through 6. In verse 7, we have these are the sons of Benjamin. He just lists off all those people. In, in verse 10, he gives the names of the priest, Jediah, the son of Jehorab, Jachin, Sariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Meshulam. These people had really interesting names. I, I, I laugh at all the, the kind of the, all the fun millennial names that I hear these days, Generation Z, but nothing takes the place of the son of Zadok uh, and the son of Ahutub and all these, all these guys. I had a seminary class where... Uh, Somebody asked the professor, um, man, how do, you say, how do you say this name? Uh, and how do you say this, like in Hebrew or Greek? And they, he just said, with confidence. Just <laughs> say it with confidence. So that's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to say these names with confidence, as if I know that's how you pronounce it. Okay, verse 15 gives the, the list of the Levites, 15 through 18. Look at verse 19. The gatekeepers are not missing. You, it's not just spiritual leaders. It's people who can actually protect the city. We need some muscle that are going to move into Jerusalem as well. The temple servants, people who are gifted at serving. Verse 22, the overseers of the Levites in Jerusalem get listed. And uh, look at verse 23. For there was a command from the king concerning them and a fixed provision for the singers as every day required. So you needed singers so that you could have worship going on at the temple, which was the center of God's activity in that day, every single day. And so when the people of God gathered, you got to have somebody picking up a guitar and, and leading worship. Uh, somebody's got to know how to tickle the ivory and play the piano. And so the singers have got to move in too. So God's using all kinds of gifted people 
in a huge step of faith where they just say, we're going in, we're the 5,000, and they leave what's comfortable and they move into town. But look at verse 25, and maybe you have a a banner sort of or a, a subtitle above where verse 25 starts. And it's a list of the villages outside of Jerusalem. Do you, everybody see that? So what Nehemiah does is he lists all the villages of the people of where the 45,000 people are going to stay. Because they didn't need 20,000 people to move into the city. That would have caused a problem. They needed 10, uh, 20%. They needed 10%, 5,000 people. So that meant the 45,000 people were going to stay put where they were in the villages. And look at this. Every single village is is listed. Nobody is left out. And as for the villages with their fields, some of the people of Judah lived in Kerioth Arba and its villages. And in Dibon and its villages. And in Jacobzeel. And its villages. You say, where, where, where do you live? I live in the villages of Jacob Zeal. That's my place. That's my stomping ground. That's where my grandpa raised me. And, that's, <laughs> and I'm going back to Jacob Zeal to live for the glory of God. Uh, verse 28, Ziklag. And 29, Imran and Zorah. And 30, uh, Zenoah and Adullam and their villages. And Lachish and its fields. And and Ezekah and its villages. And so every single place gets listed. Every valley, every field, and every single village gets listed. Even down to verse 35, Lod and Ono, the valley of the craftsmen. So that, that meant something to those people. The valley of the craftsmen was not forgotten when Nehemiah lists all the people who had to stay. And I think there's a really important spiritual point to this. That God calls us to be willing to go, to put our name in the hat and say, Lord, I'm available. If you call me, I'm going. Without reservation. Whatever you say for me to do, I'm going to do. That's what it means to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus means if he calls you to do something, or to have a conversation, or to step out in faith, to do something that's, that's a challenge. You, you, you gather people around you, you pray about it, but ultimately you do it because Jesus is Lord and I'm going to follow him and I can trust him. And he never leads us, he never leads us astray. And he never leads us into something that he, his grace doesn't provide help and, and mercy towards. But for everybody else, if our name isn't drawn, we can trust that if we're not supposed to go do that, if we're not among the 5,000, we're among the 45,000, and we're going to go back to Lod, and we're going to go back to Ono, the Valley of the Craftsmen, and we are going to be the best craftsmen that we can possibly be for the glory of God. Because my name wasn't selected in the lot to go, I can trust the sovereignty of God that he has me right here in this place, and I don't have to look out over Jerusalem and and kind of nostalgic-like and kind of think I should be there or wish I was in a different place. We can trust that God's got us right where we are. And for some of us, we just need to grab hold of that truth. For some, you need to have a heart of being willing to go. And for some of us, we need to have a heart of being willing to stay and put down roots and believe that God has you here because he's got a purpose for you here. Uh, I mean, and your job, and some of you have job envy. I just want to be somewhere else. I don't want to be in this office among these people. I don't like these people, God. 
I don't want to be around these people. They don't like me. And so it's mutual. But God has you there. God has placed you right there among those people. And so, so to be willing to stay put and, and be willing to see what God has for the field and the valley and the village where he's placed you. Well, look at verse 12. The, the last part of this section is the priests and the Levites, it says in verse 1, who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel and Yeshua. So what Nehemiah does in this little section before you get to the temple dedication in verse 26, is he just lists all the people who came 100 years before. And that's just a great reminder to all these people taking a huge step of faith, either in going to Jerusalem or staying put, to all these 50,000. Listen, here's the original people who stepped out in faith to, to just do whatever God called them to do. They left Persia years before and they settled. They did the, they did the crazy thing and they trusted God and God met them. And really, our, our lives, our church is a testimony of other people in our life who have taken steps of faith because that's the heritage of Christianity. It is people trusting God, taking steps of faith, following Jesus and transferring this good news gospel to the next generation. And that's what, that's why we exist. We exist here because somebody planted another church and then we came from that church and another church was planted from that one. And another church was planted from that one and on and on and on. And we come from a heritage of people who walk by faith. So God is doing something unique in every single generation. You, you, young people can't discount the older generation just because, you know, they don't like the same songs I like or whatever. And, young, and older people can't dismiss the younger generation. There's so much fear that, you know, genera- Generation Z is just this lost generation and, and there's no activity. God's not doing anything in this generation. That is absolutely false. God is at work in this generation. And we've got to believe if God saved me in my mess, in my generation, God is at work and will save people in the next generation. And we can rest that he is going to do it. We don't have to hover over and make sure it happens and and any of that stuff. We can trust that God is going to be at work in the next generation and just rest in that. All right. So let's just close this way. Um, what can we learn from this passage in terms of experiencing God in a renewed way? I just have a few, a few, um, a few thoughts on application in terms of what we can learn from this. I think first and foremost, it's just being willing to do undesirable things for the kingdom. It starts at a real simple place. These 5,000 people, uh, it took a big step of faith, but really what they're going to go do when they get there to Jerusalem is a lot of unglamorous, bolder moving day after day, painting the walls, uh, getting used to where we are, uh, adjusting to the smells, all that kind of stuff. It's really unglamorous work. And when we're willing to do what's undesirable for the kingdom God meets us in that place of faith. Do you remember the story uh, in the gospel where Jesus lays uh, his garment aside and he takes, uh, he takes a, a cleaning rag and he starts to wash the disciples' feet? 
every time I read this passage, it just convicts me. It's a, it's a picture of his humility of what he's going to do at the cross when he washes us in an ultimate display of humility. But it's an unfamiliar picture that just always surprises me to see him get down on his hands and feet and start to wash what's dirty and filthy and disgusting. And, and that's what he does for us. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist, and he starts to wash their feet. If you can imagine being a disciple, the king of kings is lowering himself to the lowest servant. To clean my dirty feet. Now, there's some really beautiful people in the room. Everybody here is beautiful. I think you're all really beautiful. But your feet are not. Your feet aren't. All feet are not beautiful. Okay? They're funky and gross. But Jesus gets down into it. He gets down into the dirt. He's not afraid to do that. And he's not afraid to do that in your life and in my life. Jesus says, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, A servant's not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You'll experience the blessedness of God as you do something that's undesirable. So if we redefine what real leadership is, and we say this is what spiritual leadership is, doing unglamorous things that no one else wants to do to help people see and worship Jesus, we will bless loudly people who serve in the nursery week after week because they're doing something behind the scenes, something that's unglamorous to help others see and worship Jesus. We'll bless those who are reaching out to somebody who is lonely and making room for people in their lives. We'll bless people who are setting up uh, for the community group or cleaning up or vacuuming, who are cleaning the bathroom. Thank you for cleaning the bathroom for the community group. Uh, meeting. We want to be real and be just, you know, authentic kind of people, but somebody's got to clean the bathroom, right? So thank you for the way that you, you do what's unglamorous for other people. When you bring a meal to somebody that's in need, when you pick up the phone and call somebody, when you go the extra mile at work to help somebody, to shine the light of Jesus. The boss isn't watching, but I'm going to shine the light of Jesus, and I'm going to help my coworker and go the extra mile. I saw this on Wednesday night. We had a square meeting here at the church, which is our youth meeting. And uh, it was late, and it had started raining, and it was just pouring. It's been raining a lot lately, so it was just like just buckets on Wednesday night. And uh, I'm rushing out to take the boys home, and i got to get home. And, and as I'm getting into the van, I see a guy just, I mean, he's just soaking wet with a huge pile of trash moving towards the trash can. And my first assumption is that this is a teenager because I always tell the teenagers to take out the trash. 
Like, it's their job. Like, I'm always grabbing a guy, a teenage guy, and it's like, okay, you need to take out the trash. But I noticed, and it's Aaron Paul taking out the trash. And he had worked. He had been traveling all day, so we'd already talked about it. He had been pouring it out uh, on the, uh, at a sales job and just killing it, but just working all day. Uh, came, came to a leaders' meeting, then taught the middle school boys, poured it out, and then he's out late taking the trash. And I'm just going to be honest. I was thinking, well, he's got the trash and I got to get these boys home. And I'm just going to, I was literally tempted to shut the door. I'm just being honest. Okay. And I was convicted like, oh my gosh, I got to. So I went out and I helped Aaron Paul. Aaron, I'm sorry. I was tempted to, to not help you, but I did. I did end up helping him. But that is a picture of servant humility. I mean, right there, helping students know Jesus. If the trash needs to be taken out, it's unglamorous. I'm going to do it. And that's an example, leading by example, doing what other people don't want to do. I was having a conversation with with Ryan Lowe this morning. We were talking about our desire. We have a desire, and we don't know if it's possible, to see as many bright elementary kids who are economically underprivileged and can't necessarily afford to come to VBS to come for free. But we've got this dilemma because we're at the same time needing to raise the price for VBS because it costs money. Uh, inflation, things rise, and we, we do a good job with VBS. And so the cost is going to need to increase, and yet we have this desire for more kids to come. And so I said, man, can we, you know, can you crunch the numbers? He said, I did crunch the numbers. I'm like, well, can you just crunch them again? <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I bring to the, that's my leadership. That's what I'm bringing. Just crunch them again. He's like, I crunched them and the math doesn't work. So we don't know how it's all going to work out. But just that heart to what, let's, let's pray about it. Let's put it in the Lord's hands. Let's, let's, let's just trust the Lord. And, and that right there, I mean, to pour it out all week for Ryan. And then we're talking budget in the hallway. And he's got a speaker in his hands. And he's just running around doing, doing stuff to help people know Jesus. That, 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 those are just a couple of many examples I could list here of people in the church that live that way. Secondly, and I'm moving through here really fast, um, let's put the worship of God as our first priority. The worship of God. That's what these people did. In verse 11.6, they were, uh, the 5,000 who go are described as valiant men. In 11.8, they're men of valor. This is men and women and kids too. 11.14, the mighty men of valor. That's courageous that's what that word means. They're courageous. And you become courageous when you put the worship of God as your first priority. That's what was at stake. If the city goes down, the temple goes down, and the temple was the center at that time of God's activity in the world. And so the nations aren't going to hear, and our children aren't going to hear, and so we're going to put worship first. And when you do that, it makes you courageous. And you do things that people stand back and go, what? Do you remember the story where Jesus makes a whip of cords? That's like, we don't have a lot of coloring sheets of this. But he makes a whip of cords when he sees a bunch of people in the temple, which was supposed to be a house of prayer, and they're selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. He's like walking through this temple and everybody's just, just doing their thing. And he just drives them out with this whip of cords. 
and overturns tables. And he says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That meant zeal for the worship of God in the house of God was consuming Jesus. That's what he's consumed by. That's what the father seeks. The father seeks worshipers. And Jesus' Jesus's zeal was consuming him. So we have to ask ourselves, what consumes me? What am I zealous for? What what captivates my zealousness? Everybody's zealous about something. Don't say, well, I'm just not my personality. You're zealous for something. And, you're ca- and what you're zealous for is what you're captive to. And what you're captivated by. And so we have to ask ourselves, what consumes us? I've been in Frisco for 13 years, Frisco area for 13 years. And I've observed it. I've heard people talk about it, but then I've, I'm now, I have kids that are in middle school and totally into sports. And now we're in the, we're in, uh, we're in middle school, which is like a, if I can describe a pressure cooker tarmac to, uh, launch of graduation. And you've got to lock it in, Jack, what you're going to do and who you are and what your calling is and what college you're going to go to and what's your major. And these, I mean, it is, it is, it's something like I've never, uh, witness or seen. Uh, and really what consumes our city, it's a functional idol. I think we all have to recognize the functional idol of our city is the success of our kids. The success of our kids. That could be the athletic success of our kids, the academic success of our kids, the artistic success of our kids. Like our value is found in what they can accomplish, how they can perform, and Really, it's a reflection of our gods. We serve these gods, and we ask our kids to serve those same gods. And then we wonder why in the world anxiety across the nation is at an all-time high among children and teenagers. And depression is at an all-time high because we really, honestly, we, we, we do this. We, our, our anxiety is at an all-time high because... We're serving a God that it, it, was, it was good, but it became a cruel taskmaster over us. And that's what sports can do in this, in this city. And that's what academics and everything. I mean, there's so many things that we can give our attention to and, and can consume us. So, so Frisco's got the, the, the title, best place to raise an athlete. And that might be true. I don't know if that's true or not. But it's also... the maybe the best place to raise a very anxious student who can't keep up with the demands, not just of the city, but of our city. And just to be sure, the best place to raise an athlete isn't just any athlete. It's our kids that we're mostly concerned about as a city. I'm not speaking about just as our church. We have a huge heart for adoption and foster care in our church. And this isn't a statement, a guilt statement about Anybody should do anything, but there are 170 kids in foster care in Collin County. So let's just be clear that the best place to raise an athlete is uh, is qualified by well, maybe not those kinds of potential athletes because that's a, a tremendous uh, sacrifice. And so we just have to recognize we've got we've got gods in our city that we are tempted. We are tempted, and, and listen, I'm tempted. Okay, I got a game at 2 p.m. and I'm going to be cheering at the top of my lungs 
for, for my kid to, to be awesome at the game, right? But we've got to do better than just, you know, saying, you know, God is good and sports is great. We've got to reverse that and say sports is good. But if you give your life to it, it's going to be a cruel taskmaster. And we've got to give our kids bigger dreams and better dreams of kingdom expansion in the world. John Piper says missions exist because worship doesn't. And I think that's just a helpful, clear statement of why Dave and Stacey here are in Cameroon. They'll tell you it's because worship doesn't exist among the Bakum people in Cameroon. That's why we're there. It's not just because we, we just love to live in a really difficult place. It's because worship doesn't exist there. Why do we walk across the street to get to know our neighbors? Because we want worship to exist there. Why do we welcome Muslim neighbors and Hindu neighbors and gay neighbors and self-righteous Christian neighbors into our home? It's because we want worship to exist in every one of those people. Why do we seek revival in the public square of our city like Frisco ISD, Little Elm ISD, Prosper ISD? Is because we want to see worship take place in every single school in Frisco ISD. I mean, and just so, so you know, if you're, a, if you're a teacher, a faculty, an aide, just out of curiosity, anybody in here, you work for Frisco ISD, Little Elm ISD, didn't prosper, any of those things. Can we just, can you raise your hand? Yes. Thank you. Four or five people. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for your contribution. Thank you for the way that you, you're, you're in, a, in a public square. You're in a place where, I mean, all kinds of thoughts and ideas are, uh, are shared. And I, we just want to say thank you for being light in those places and caring about the, the students in there and wanting worship to take place in all of those those arenas. And lastly, that we make ourselves available to God. And that's just very, very simple, but it's so profound. When we make ourselves available to God, if we just say yes to, to God, he will, not, he will not do something that is so scary in our lives that, uh, you know, he, he will not push us out into something that there, there's not joy and desire to do. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. He puts new desires and new affections in our hearts. And so we're going to close with, with just singing a prayer of availability to God. Tim's going to come and lead us in this last kind of last few moments together as, as, as a church here. And we're just going to pray and ask God to be available to him. And you could be here today and you could be, you know what, I don't. I don't know if I believe in God. And if you're at a place of saying, I don't know if I'm at a place of believing in God, you can say that very thing in a heart of availability to God and say, God, I don't know if I believe in you, but will you make yourself real to me? If you're real, will you make yourself real to me? And you could be a Christian here and you've You've known God for a lot of years and you, you can look back on lots of past experiences with God, past faith, past moments of trust. But the Lord is calling you to trust him in a fresh way today. To really surrender to him and say, I'm not just going to look to the past. I'm going to trust you right now. And if, if God has felt distant to you, 
could you just acknowledge that to him and say, God, you have been distant to me. And I thought it was you, but I think I've moved away. That would just be a real honest confession. I've moved away, but I want to move closer to you. I want to feel the warmth again. I want to feel the joy again. I want to feel the life again. And it's just a matter of just moving closer. If God were like a fire and you're out in the cold, you just got to move towards the fire. James says, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. That's what God says. Draw near, move towards him and he will come running to you. Let's all stand and we're going to close with this song. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.